Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Robert Lustig, who is Professor uh, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, and Director of the Weight Assessment for Teen and Child Health Program at UCSF. His most recent book is Metabolic, The Lower and Lies of Process, Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me, Gil. Appreciate it. Yes, I, thanks for doing this. So I, I love the name, uh, Metabolic. Uh, metabolical. <laughs> Got metabolical. Yeah, because it's a portmanteau of two words, metabolic, the workings of the body, and diabolical, the workings of big ag, big pharma, and big government. Metabolical, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, um, so, so I want to sort of go into the details of the book. But before we do that, do you want to sort of lay out your thesis, uh, sort of the, the, the high level thesis of what you're pursuing in the book? So the highest level, if you will, okay? I'll do it in um, an analogy that I use in the, in the book. There's a wasp buzzing around your attic. What do you do? You kill the wasp? Or do you destroy the wasp's nest? In order to solve a problem, you have to work upstream of the problem. Working downstream of the problem only fixes the result. It doesn't fix the cause. And in medicine, in order to fix the problem, you have to fix the cause. And med modern medicine has basically forgotten that. And we have focused solely, exclusively, over the last 50 years on the result. And we've, in the process, we've gotten fatter, sicker, and poorer, and stupider, and healthcare is going to hell in a handbasket because we haven't fixed the problem. Yeah, so um, 
you know, throughout the book, you talk about sort of treating symptoms rather than the disease itself. Exactly right. And I spent some time in the pharmaceutical industry, and I know exactly what you mean. Uh, there's a lot of money in treating symptoms. Indeed. And uh, symptoms give give uh, give you treating symptoms give you sort of immediate gratification. We can measure, we can demonstrate, um, we can show some results, as you say. Right. Uh, but it doesn't really mean we solve the problem, right? That's right. They, they give you a false sense of security that you're actually doing something. So, like uh, the analogy I use is, you know, it's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache, ain't gonna do a damn thing for the brain tumor. So, so let's get into the sort of the metabolic syndrome channel. So there are, there are a bunch of diseases there that most people are familiar with, uh, perhaps hypertension, type two diabetes, things like that are people are very familiar with. Right. Um, but there are other things in there. And uh, as you say in the book, I used to think it's 50% of the healthcare costs, you said 75%. 75. Of the healthcare costs. Yep, 75% of healthcare costs are due to chronic metabolic disease. So in the book, I talk about eight chronic metabolic diseases that chew up 75% of healthcare dollars. And here they are. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. All of those have exploded since 1970. Every one of them existed before 1970, but those are the eight diseases that have just gone completely haywire, and they are chewing up all the healthcare dollars. So I want to rewind time a little back, um, Rob. So Homo sapiens, um, we used to live on meat, right, uh, way back in Africa, and then maybe 10,000 years ago, we invented agriculture and we sort of settled down and started eating a bunch of other stuff. Right. So is this something that has sort of um, gotten to us in, in more recent times? Well, so it is true at one point in time, we ate a lot of meat, if we could find it. <laughs> And it is true that about 10,000 years ago, uh, people invented agriculture. Jared Diamond called it the worst thing that ever happened to civilization. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I, I sort of get the idea. Um, it certainly changed water. It changed, I mean, basically, there would be no wars if there was no agriculture. All right. But, you know, there would also be a whole lot fewer people on the planet. Now, the question is, once we invented agriculture, did people start getting sick? And the answer is no, they didn't. And the reason is because the agriculture that they were cultivating was perfectly healthy. And it could still be perfectly healthy if that's what we ate. The point is, when we invented agriculture, we invented um, herbs, roots, um, vegetables, the occasional fruit, food that came with a lot of 
micronutrients, a lot of uh, polyphenols, uh, uh, biotin, uh, uh, anthocyanins, all sorts of stuff like that. And most importantly, a whole boatload of fiber. It turns out that fiber was really important. It was the thing that actually made people who were the gatherers, the, you know, shall we say, the, the agricultural uh, versus the, you know, meat eating hunter type um, still able to survive. That fiber we throw in the garbage today. That fiber was essential. You say, how can fiber be essential? It goes out in your poop. It's exactly why it's essential, because that fiber is not feeding you. That fiber is feeding your gut microbiome. It's feeding your bacteria. And you have to feed your bacteria or the bacteria will feed on you. And that's actually the cause of a lot of the disease today is our bacteria feeding on us. So when we ate fiber, we didn't have this problem, but now we don't because Coke, Doritos and Oreos, you know, are vegan. And, you know, so we've got a whole bunch of people thinking that processed carbohydrate is a good idea and it's not. So what I talk about in the book is that in order for any given food to be healthy, it had a, it has to satisfy two, count them, two criteria. And these criteria are inviolate across the board in every country, in every study that's been done over the last 50 years. And here are the two uh, precepts. Six words, two precepts. Protect the liver, feed the gut. Any food that does both is healthy. Any food that does neither is poison. And any food that does one or the other, but not both, is somewhere in the middle. And the empiric data actually support that. So we have a lot of people, you know, who think they know what healthy means. They don't have a clue. And the point of the book is to demonstrate with the science, with the empiric data, that this is the way we should be evaluating what's healthy. And if we did that, Number one, we would eat very differently. And number two, we would not have disease. And number three, we would save the planet. So if I understand this correctly, Rob, so it is not that uh, even Homo sapiens, the hunter-gatherers, as you say, ate fruit and nuts while they could find any, anything to kill. Right. Uh, but it's not that agriculture was invented. We started mass producing this stuff. Right. Uh, that that, should, that that is fine because it's still sort of natural stuff we are mass producing. Absolutely. The problem came in modern times. That's right. When we took the natural stuff and started processing it, is that the is that the issue? Correct. Exactly right. It's the it's the it's not what's in the food. It's what's been done to the food that matters. And unfortunately, what's been done to the food you can't find on the food label. That's not disclosed. So everyone thinks, oh, you just count up the number of grams of this or the percent daily value of that. Actually, that has nothing to do with any, whether any individual food is healthy or not. What matters is what's been done to the food. So if sugar's been added, which is pretty much all the processed foods in the grocery store, 74% of the items in the American grocery store today have been spiked with added sugar 
And that added sugar is not added for you. It's added for them. Because they know when they add it, you buy more. So that's, you know, cash flow. And the, uh, you know, the, the lack of fiber, okay, which is that, you know, was taken out of the food very specifically for shelf life, for depreciation, because you can't freeze fiber. So uh, I'll prove it to you. You know, go home tonight, take an orange, put it in your freezer, take it out the next morning, put it on the counter, let it thaw, try to eat it, see what you get. You get mush. Why do you get mush? The ice crystals macerate the cell wall of the plant, let all the water rush in. Hey, food industry knows that. They also know if they squeeze it and freeze it, it lasts forever. They've taken a fruit, say an orange, and they've turned it into a commodity, frozen concentrated orange juice, which they can sell on the commodities exchange. Okay, and because there's no depreciation, that's all profit. The problem was that fiber, which they threw in the garbage when they squeezed it and freezed it, that was the good stuff. That was the reason to eat the orange. But people don't think of it that way because they think, well, the juice is the reason to eat the orange because the juice has vitamin C. No, <laughs> actually, you know, first of all, we're getting enough vitamin C. And if you're not getting enough vitamin C, go take a pill. <laughs> but the fact is the fiber is the reason to eat the fruit. And that's what you're not eating. And the question then is, well, what is fiber doing for you aside from feeding your bacteria? Well, it does a couple of things. First thing it does, and it's soluble and insoluble fiber, you need both. Soluble fibers like inulin, um, pectins, like what holds jelly together. Uh, uh, insoluble fibers like cellulose, the stringy stuff in celery. So the insoluble fiber acts like a lattice work, like a fishnet. The soluble fiber plugs the holes in the fishnet. Together, they form an impenetrable secondary barrier on the inside of the duodenum, first part of the intestine which reduces the rate of absorption of nutrients, and especially of sugars, from the gut into the bloodstream so it doesn't get to the liver, thus protecting the liver, thus reducing the damage that these do to the liver and also reducing the insulin response because it's the insulin response that drives the chronic metabolic disease. So you're losing that when you defibrotize uh, process. Right. So, so, so two issues, right? One is during the processing of food, we are adding stuff to it. Yep. So what comes out at the other end of it is something that is, uh, it has a lot of stuff that you don't really need. Uh, for example, sugar. And That's the other aspect you're talking about is sort of um, processing it into making something more easily um, uh, more easily used, like uh, like a food juice or something. Mm -hmm. uh, in which case, you're actually throwing away, you're discarding the good stuff, That's right. and essentially getting the bad stuff into a bottle, Indeed. Uh, and then getting people to consume it. So, so I want to go to the mechanics of this a little bit, Rob. So, you, you talked about uh, sort of protecting the liver, feeding the gut as sort of the fundamental constructs here. Um, so, so what is happening in the liver when you put this bad stuff into your body? Right. Very good question. So, 
first of all, there are many things that you can consume that will affect your liver. Fructose, which is the sweet molecule of sugar, branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, valine. These are essential amino acids. You have to consume them, but when you consume too much, bad things happen. Alcohol, trans fats, heavy metals, glyphosate. All of these things are things you have to protect the liver against. Now, what happens to sugar? In fact, what happens to sugar, uh, branched-chain amino acids, uh, alcohol, and trans fats? Basically, all four of those are metabolized by the liver virtually identically. So what happens is they enter the liver. The liver doesn't have a pop-off for the excess. So it has a pop-off for glucose. It goes to glycogen. Glycogen is liver starch. You know, and liver starch is basically non-toxic. It's safe. That's why marathoners carb load before a race. Right? But fructose is not glucose. Fructose is handled completely differently. So what happens is it enters the liver. There's no glycogen pop-off, no insulin regulation. The excess goes all the way down to the mitochondria. The mitochondria, the little energy burning factories inside your cells, can't process that tsunami of excess nutrient fast enough because how fast you supply it versus how fast you burn it, the difference ultimately is the problem, okay? You know, they should be in equilibrium, but they're not. So you're basically flooding your cell with the metabolites of sugar, branched chain amino acids, alcohol, trans fats. That excess has no choice but to be shuttled out of the mitochondria and then they get turned into liver fat by a process called de novo lipogenesis, DNL, new fat making. This is how your body converts sugar to fat. Now, what that fat should do after it's made is get packaged and then get exported out of the liver as serum triglyceride. And that's the triglyceride you measure in your you know, lipid panel. That's yeah. where it's coming from. That's your liver fat being excreted out of your liver. Your serum triglyceride is basically the product of conversion of carbohydrate, branched-chain amino acids, alcohol, and trans fats into liver fat and exporting. The problem is, if, it is, if it's exported out, it's a substrate for cardiovascular disease or obesity, and some of it won't get exported out. Some of it will precipitate right there in the liver as a lipid droplet. Now you've got fatty liver disease. That mucks up the insulin signaling in the cell. That causes hepatic insulin resistance. That raises insulin levels all over the body because the pancreas is trying to make the liver do its job. And then that hyperinsulinemia, that high insulin, is actually driving cell growth in other places where it shouldn't happen, like, for instance, your coronary arteries. And now you've got cardiovascular disease. Or in your breast tissue, now you've got breast cancer, et cetera, et cetera. So in addition, insulin blocks leptin signaling, and leptin's a trophic factor for neuron development. So now you've got dementia. So 
that insulin is the bad guy in the story, and the goal is keep the insulin down. But if you flood your liver, you can't keep your insulin down. And all you're going to do is get fatter and sicker and dumber and, you know, um, and you'll ultimately, you know, you'll die. I mean, that's that's the final common pathway for all of us, but you're going to do it a whole lot faster. So keeping your insulin down is essential and flooding your liver is the best way to make yourself sick. So, so more simplistically, Rob, so fructose going in in excess amounts, liver cannot handle it. It, it converts into, into fat. Yep. It starts to take that fat, package it out as triglycerides into the blood. Sometimes it cannot do that, so it gets deposited in the liver itself. Yep. That might, over time, reduce the functionality of the liver. Right. Um, so, that's, so that's, that's one mechanism. Other mechanism is, uh, is the pancreas sort of flooding the body with insulin during this time? Sure. So the, here's a question. Um, you know, doctors will get this. May, other people may not, but we'll try. Everywhere in the body, the blood goes like this. Aorta, artery, uh, arterial, capillary within an organ, venule, vein, inferior vena cava, heart. In other words, the blood passes through one organ. There are two places in the body where the blood passes through two organs. One is the hypothalamus. So the blood goes aorta, artery, arterial, capillaries in the hypothalamus, venule, capillaries in the pituitary, jugular vein, back to the heart. Two, two, two organs, hypothalamus, pituitary. That's called a portal system. There's another place in the body where there's a portal system, two organs, pancreas, liver. Why does the pancreas drain into the liver? Why doesn't the pancreas drain into the general circulation, into the vena cava? Why does it do that? And the reason is because the liver is the primary target of insulin action. So the liver sees the pancreatic insulin secretion and does something. And when the liver gets sick, there's a reflex that tells the pancreas, hey, I have to put out more insulin to make the liver do its job. Just like if somebody got sick on an assembly line, everybody else would have to work harder. And so the pancreas basically has to huff and puff and ultimately gets overwhelmed and ultimately can't make enough insulin for as sick as the liver got. And when that day comes, that's type two diabetes. So cleaning up the liver is essential to reversing type two diabetes. And what we've learned is that all of the maneuvers that are currently available to reverse type two diabetes, metformin, ketogenic diet, exercise, clear the fat out of the liver. That's why it works. So, so at some point I would imagine the pancreas um, 
runs out of its ability to produce. So, so you mentioned in the in the book, the fundamental issue is that the body is flooded with insulin. It's just not. It's not. It's, it's just not sugar. That's right. Uh, sugar you can measure very very easily. Right. But more importantly, when you develop insulin resistance, the body is sort of flooded with insulin. That's right. And there's a lot of, lot of different implications, right? So when the body is flooded with insulin, over time, wouldn't the pancreas sort of give up? I mean, yeah. what, what happens to the pancreas? The pancreas gives up. The pancreas burns out. The pan you know. So when we say burnout, that suggests that it can't come back. Okay, what happens is the pancreas becomes exhausted and it can't make insulin fast enough for the needs of the body. When that happens, now the blood glucose rises and that's type two diabetes. So in order to reverse that process, you have to make the liver happy again. And if you make the liver happy, then the pancreas can calm down, it can rest, it can build up storage of insulin so that when the next meal comes, it can release enough to be able to handle it. So. Everyone thinks that the goal of uh, diabetes therapy is weight loss. And if you lose weight, the diabetes will improve. Well, that's true, but the question is, why did the weight loss work? And the answer is because the first place that the uh, weight, the, the, that loses the, the weight or the fat is the liver. So in fact, you can get your liver to lose that fat even with as minimal as a three to 5% weight loss. So even though you haven't really affected your subcutaneous fat, you know, the fat on your butt, what you've done is you've been able to drain the fat out of your liver and that improves your metabolic status because it's all about your liver. The so liver is the primary target of insulin action. So, so that's the first fat that burns off when you lose weight, the, the fat stored in the liver? Yeah. Absolutely, and we know that because we can measure it. We've, we've seen it in our own studies. We did a study uh, in 43 children with metabolic syndrome who had fatty liver, all high sugar consumers, African-American and Latina. What we did was we studied them at, on their home diet. Then we catered their meals for the next nine days. No added sugar, no added sugar. So we took the percent calories of sugar in their diet from 28% of calories down to 10% of calories each day for nine days. Now, if you do that, you're gonna lose 350 to 400 calories a day out of their diet. And if you do that for 10 days, you might lose weight. We didn't want our patients to lose weight because if they got better, people say, well, of course they got better, they lost weight. That wasn't the goal of this question, the study. The study was not to ask, does weight loss fix the problem? We know weight loss fixes the problem, okay? The question was, does getting rid of the sugar fix the problem, irrespective of weight? So we had to then substitute the 350 to 400 calories we were taking out with something that was equicaloric that had the same number of calories. So we had to give them extra refined starch. So this was a starch for sugar exchange, a glucose for fructose exchange in the vernacular. We took the pastries out, we put the bagels in. We took the sweetened yogurt out, we put the baked potato chips in. 
We took the chicken teriyaki out. We put the turkey hot dogs in. So we didn't give them good food. We gave them crappy food. It was all low fiber food, by the way. It was all processed food, ultra processed food. But it was no added sugar food, and it was food kids would eat. And we gave them a scale. And every day, we'd call them up on the phone and say, what'd you weigh? And if they were losing weight, eat more! In order to keep their weight constant or even higher than baseline. So that no one could say, well, they lost weight. And then we studied them 10 days later. Every aspect of their metabolic health got better. And the reason they, that their metabolic health got better was not because their subcutaneous or big butt fat changed. It didn't change at all. Not because their belly fat went down, which it did about 10%, because the insulin went down, but because their liver fat went down 22%. And we showed that the change in the liver fat predicted the improvement in insulin sensitivity. And we showed that their pancreas started functioning properly. So we reversed their metabolic syndrome with no change in calories and no change in weight, just by taking this toxic molecule, fructose, out of their diet and substituting a different molecule, glucose, instead. Is it equally sweet? No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not sweet. So yeah. glucose has a sweetness index of 74. Sucrose, table sugar, has a sweetness index of 100. Fructose alone, you know, crystalline fructose has a sweetness index of 173. High fructose corn syrup, by the way, has a sweetness index of 120. So glucose is like molasses. Now, is molasses sweet? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, it might be good in a cookie, but, you know, I mean, you don't see people going around chugging Cairo syrup or molasses, do you? All right. Molasses is so-so, right? All right. On the other hand, sucrose, table sugar, cane sugar, you know, beet sugar, you know, the stuff you put in your coffee, you know, that's got fructose in it. That's the molecule we seek. That's the molecule that acts on the reward system of the brain. That's the molecule that is addictive. So um, is this molecule sort of new to us? I mean, it should have been around right from the beginning, right? Of Homo sapiens. No, it's been around forever. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb, Gil, and say that you have some Indian heritage. Is I do, I do. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in South India. Yes. Okay, good. All right. So the Indians invented sugar. Yes. <laughs> you know this. 1200 BC. They were boiling sugar cane, you know, wild sugar cane, and reducing the, um, the, the, the syrup down to a brownish gunk that they would put in earthenware pots and put on boats and send it around, you know, original commerce. And they called this stuff kanda, K-H-A-N-D-A, which is where we get the word candy from. So it's been around for, 12, you know, for 3,000 years, minimum. All right. The point is, we didn't have a lot of it. Right? There wasn't that much of it. Um, yeah. it for, for hundreds of years, um, sugar was fetishized and it was available only to royalty. They used to make elaborate sculptures out of sugar back in the 15, 1600s. All right? And only the kings you know, could have it. 
the rest of the masses forget it, you know, and have anything. And of course, it was so important to the British that that's where we got slave trade from. It was for sugar. It wasn't for oil. It was for sugar. Right. So, you know, it's been around, but you know, no one had enough of it. Yeah. In 1700, we got the pot still you know, in order to turn it into alcohol. And we learned the crystallization method and the centrifugation method back in the 1800s. And we started processing it into five pound bags. And so it started to become a problem, but not really bad. But then after World War II, production really geared up into high gear. And then in 1975, was sort of the death knell the advent of high fructose corn syrup, because that was half the price and immediately available. And everyone on the planet could have as much sugar as they wanted. Yeah, that's so interesting, Rob. So, um, you know, from a legacy perspective, there was some sort of an expectation that when you when you have sugar, you're wealthy, you're right. royalty, you know, it came with money. Right. And, and now, in the 1970s. Now it's, <laughs> now it's the poor, only the poor, you know, eat it. Right, right. That's right. And when we scaled up production, everybody could have it. And they say, well, you know, this is what the, the stuff that royalty ate in the past. Let me have a bit of it. That's and right. then we went from there and everybody started eating more and more of it, I guess. Exactly right. So this is, you know, I mean, it, many books have been written about the sugar trade and how this all came to be. Um, there's um, uh, Sidney Mintz's Sweetness and Power from 1985. There's, um, oh, what's the lady's name from uh, Toronto? A Bittersweet uh, History of Sugar. Um, forgotten the name. Um, it's at the top of my, uh, Elizabeth Abbott uh, yeah. wrote uh, Bittersweet History of uh, Sugar. Uh, and there are several other books that have come out over the years. Um, Gary Taubes wrote The Case Against Sugar. I wrote Fat Chance, you know. I mean, there's been a lot that's out there, but, you know, ultimately none of it matters except the science. Because the only way to rein it in is to prove that it's the cause of disease. Well, we have that now. Yeah, cause of uh, chronic disease, right? So you, you talked about the many different diseases. The problem with type 2 diabetes uh, obviously is that it affects every organ in the body, uh, how you die, you could die with you know, heart attack, you could die with all sorts of different things. Yep. So uh, from a policy perspective, uh, I think the data is pretty clear, but why are we not progressing on policy <laughs> on this? Well, I think there are two reasons. The first is, this is the food industry's juggernaut. This is the food industry's gravy train because they figured out in the 1980s when we went low fat. Well, you know, low fat food tastes like cardboard. Okay, you know, so they had to do something to make the food palatable. Okay, well, sugar was the answer. I'll give you an example. Chocolate milk. All right, so when I grew up in the 1960s or so, right? We had whole milk and everyone in school drank the whole milk and there was no problem. Then we learned about cardiovascular disease and we learned that saturated fat was bad for us, which, by the way, is complete, utter garbage. 
All right, and we now have the data to demonstrate how this all came about and who who was actually was in charge of the subterfuge. It was the Sugar Association. Um, but anyway, so we had to take the fat out of the milk. Well, when you take the fat out of the milk, it tastes like dishwater and the kids wouldn't drink it. <laughs> so the dietician said, well, we got to get the kids to drink their milk because that's how we get them their vitamin D. And so what they do, they added the chocolate or the strawberry. So turns out that dairy saturated fat actually is protective against diabetes and heart disease. Mm. Okay, because it's not like any other saturated fat. It's not like meat saturated fat. Dairy saturated fat is very different. It's odd chain uh, fatty acids with a different phospholipid signature, which has been shown to be protective against heart disease and diabetes. Right? It's actually anti-inflammatory. So we took the good stuff out and put the bad stuff in. And then we want to know why our kids are fat. Duh. So, you know, that so that's one reason is that the food industry, you know, realized this was their juggernaut. And the second is because we're addicted. Because fructose is addictive. And no one wants to put limits on anything that is addictive. Because after all, why would you want to limit your access to it? Especially something legal, like sugar. Yeah. I was wondering, Rob, in your research, did you come across any sort of you know, populations that don't have access to sugar. I'm thinking about, you know, maybe Amazon, Australian Aborigines. I don't know. I mean, are there populations who never had access to sugar? They got plenty. They got boatloads. There's one group that doesn't have access to sugar. I say, take it back. There are four groups that don't have access to sugar. The Maasai, the Rendili, the Tokelau, and the Inuit. They don't have access to sugar. And guess what? They have access to a lot of fat, all right? That's what they live on, meat and milk and blood, all right? And they have the lowest rates of heart disease on the planet, despite the fact that they consume lots of fat and no sugar. In addition, we have another group that is completely devoid of sugar. They're people who have a disease called hereditary fructose intolerance, or HFI. They are missing an enzyme in their liver that is necessary to metabolize fructose, called fructose aldolase B. And when so you're missing this enzyme, what happens is you send the um, uh, uh, fructose metabolites down a different pathway that ultimately leads to hypoglycemia. And so babies with this disorder end up showing up at around age six months, the first time they have juice in their bottle, right? and they show up in the emergency room seizing, and they have a glucose of, serum glucose of five, you know, which is extraordinarily low. And so, you know, the, the doctors get them out of their hypoglycemia, they get admitted to the ICU, uh, they get a whole bunch of tests, they realize that it's a liver problem, so they get a liver biopsy, and they get diagnosed with hereditary fructose intolerance. And then these babies, have to be on a sugar-free diet for the rest of their lives. Well, there's a registry of those babies who are completely 100% devoid of sugar for their entire lives. The registry is out of UC Berkeley. Turns out they're the healthiest people on the planet. Mm. It's an amazing thing. So, 
I mean, at the heart of it, we have two things. We have sugar and we have salt. Two white powdery substances. <laughs> That's fundamentally killing us all. However, let me let me spend two minutes on salt. Everyone says salt is bad for you. Well, I can tell you salt's good for you. But you know, our ancestors before refrigeration it's used to salt, consume yeah. 15 grams of salt per day. So the schooners that would go out into the Atlantic to catch fish, you know, they would be miles and miles and miles, hundreds of miles away from land. And they had these fish that had to stay fresh till they got to uh, to you know port, and there was no refrigeration. How'd they do that? They packed it in salt. They packed the fish in salt. So when the salt when the fish came out, you know they were very salty. So people back in you know before refrigeration were consuming up to 15 grams of salt. Today we consume 6.9 median, right? So we're consuming about 40 percent of the salt we used to consume. But those people didn't have hypertension, but now we do. And now we tell people they have to get cut their salt intake down to 23 to 2.3 grams. So cut it by two thirds. So how come our ancestors could eat 15 grams of salt and not have a problem? And today you have to eat 2.3 grams of salt, one fifth as much in order to keep from having a problem. Why is that? The answer is because insulin, which is high in insulin resistance, causes sodium resorption at the level of the kidney. So the higher your insulin, the more salt you resorb, and therefore the higher your blood pressure goes. So it's yeah, actually yeah. not the salt, it's the sugar that makes the salt a problem. So if you got rid of the sugar, the salt wouldn't be a problem anymore. And I wrote a paper many years ago with my colleague, Stephanie Wynn, just a spoonful of sugar helps the blood pressure go up. And that's shown in many studies, including the Predimed study and many other studies, that every increase in sugar consumption increases the blood pressure. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to this, Rob. Uh, when I was growing up in South India, we didn't have a refrigerator and we ate a lot of fish and the fish was always put on salt. So as I would imagine, we consumed a lot of salt. Hypertension was unheard of uh, in India when I was growing up in the 70s. Right. But now in that area, I think it's sort of 35% diabetic, type 2 diabetic, yep. uh, very high incidence of hypertension. So, so we have this movie being played out in front of us Yes. in almost every part of the world. Um, but the, the reasons for this appear quite simple, at least if I believe your book, it appears quite obvious, uh, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> this is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly you mentioned the food industry, um, they have an incentive um, uh, to, to, to continue this. Um, the symptomatic treatment, um, or by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, there's a lot of money there, obviously. So having diseases that have a lot of symptoms uh, are always useful uh, in that context. Uh, but from a regulatory perspective, uh, we are running out of, I mean, we are spending $4.5 trillion in healthcare every year in, in the US, right. uh, around 20% of GDP. 
So from a regulatory perspective, we're running out of money in Medicare and Medicaid. Um, won't we have sufficient force here to really tackle this problem? Um, well, or I, you would think so. But, you know, you can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And people think healthcare is the problem. No, health is the problem. You cannot solve healthcare until you solve health. You cannot solve health until you solve diet. And you cannot solve diet until you know what the hell is wrong. And for the last 50 years, we've been barking up the wrong tree. We've been saying fat was the problem. It's not, it never was. So when are we going to turn that ship around? Well, I've been working tirelessly over the last decade trying to get this ship turned around. And you know what? It's starting to turn around. It is. Uh, and I've got some metrics that tell me that the ship is starting to turn around. I'll give you two examples. Yeah. Coke jettisoned Adwala. And just last week, PepsiCo jettisoned uh, uh, Tropicana and Naked Juice. Now, they didn't do that for their health. And they certainly didn't do it for your health. They did it because of sales. That's number one. Number two, in 2011, IFIC, which is the International Food Information Council, a PR arm of the food industry, and they do a yearly uh, assessment and a yearly uh, report. In 2011, they asked the general public, what is the most important source of calories for weight gain? Back then, only 11% of people responded refined carbohydrate and sugar. 40, I, I can't even tell you, I, I can't remember how many it was. It was like at least half said a calorie is a calorie, doesn't matter, or I don't know. Okay. They asked the same exact question in 2018. And now from 11%, now it's up to 42% of people said refined carbohydrate and sugar were the bad guy. And the number of people who said a calorie is a calorie, or I don't know, went down by the exact same amount. In other words, people are being educated away from calories and toward the concept of refined carbohydrate and sugar, which are, by the way, are the drivers of insulin. So that issue, it's, happening. it's happening. Yeah. So, so are people getting educated, but other issue, Rob, is economics, right? So the, the reason we have fast food, the reason we have a lot of this bad stuff yeah. is that it's economically affordable well, for a large percentage of the population, right? Why is it economically affordable? The answer is because the stuff in all of that processed food, corn, wheat, soy, sugar, it's subsidized. Hmm. Food subsidies drive the cheapness of processed food. If it wasn't for the subsidies, the food industry wouldn't have the carte blanche to put anything they want in, including sugar. So the question is, are food subsidies good? There is no economist on the planet who believes in food subsidies because they distort the market. Right? Food subsidies are a holdover from 1933, the original farm bill which was created because we had two crises in this country at the same time. We had the depression and we had the dust bowl. 
So we had a whole lot of destitute people. And most of those destitute people were in the American Southwest. The food production was in the Northeast. So we had to get the food from the Northeast to the Southwest in order to keep these people from dying of starvation. Problem is, if you just take the food and put it on railroad cars and ship it there, by the time it got there, it'd be rancid. So the food industry had to go into high gear and the way we, they did that in order to process it, to basically take the wheat and strip the fiber away and package it into 10 pound bags of flour. And so it could be baked up, you know, uh, locally. And so it wouldn't go rancid. Now, in order to do that, in order to get the food industry to play, the U.S. government had to provide an inducement called a food subsidy. And so subsidies made sense. Got us through the Depression and the Dust Bowl. It even made sense through World War II. But after World War II, it stopped making sense. It wasn't necessary anymore. But did the subsidies go away? No. Food industry figured out, hey, we can make money at this. So what did we do? We doubled down. We made more subsidies. Okay, and that, you know, carried us through the 60s. And then in 1971, uh, after Johnson's war on poverty was picked up by Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon realized that, you know, fluctuating food prices caused political unrest. And he had a lot of political unrest to deal with. So he admonished his um, agriculture secretary, Earl Butts, Earl Rusty Butts, Levin, um, to make food cheap. Make food cheap. And so what did he do? He went to the heartland. He went to Nebraska, and, you know, Kansas and Iowa. And he said three things. Row to row, furrow to furrow, get bigger, get out. So everybody said, well, the only way I can do that is by increasing productivity. And the only way I can do that is monoculture. So that's when the cows left the farm and got moved into the concentrated animal feeding operations, the CAFOs in Kansas. Okay, But the problem was the manure from the cows was what was fertilizing the fields to grow the corn. So now there's no fertilizer. So now the corn's going to die, except you can spray it with nitrogen fertilizer, ammonium nitrate. All right. And so then the corn will grow and the cows are in Kansas. All right, fine. Except that the nitrogen runoff turns into nitrous oxide, which has more heat trapping capacity than methane or carbon dioxide put together. All right. And it, you know, goes into the water tables and ends up in the rivers. And that's why we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. That's, you know, three quarters of the size of the Gulf. So there go all the shrimp. And the cows in Kansas, they don't have, they're not living on the farm. So they're not eating the alfalfa and the clover. They're not getting the micronutrients, the anthocyanins that are necessary in order to, you know, keep healthy. So they've got immune system defects. They get sick because they're sitting in their own manure. Okay. So they're getting cholera and, you know, all sorts of other GI diseases. So what do the uh, cattlemen do? They give them antibiotics. And so that kills off the bacteria in the cow's intestine, which is actually good if you're trying to make fat, because 
That's one of the things that increases metabolic syndrome. That's one of the things that increases the amount of fat in the meat. So that's why the meat is marbled. I don't know if you've ever looked at meat in, say, Argentina or Italy. It's nice and homogeneous and red and pink. Okay. Whereas our meat is all marbled and we say, oh, that's because it's American beef and it's the best. Actually, it's the worst. Okay. But the flavors and the fat. So, you know, we go along with it. So bottom line, those animals have metabolic syndrome. We just kill them before they get sick. And the reason is because we had to give them antibiotics to keep them alive because we took them off the farm. So we're poisoning the environment and we're making our own poison food in the process. Yeah, so so set of legacy policies for historical reasons that seems to perpetuate that's creating bad behavior in consumers. Absolutely. Um, seems like an easy fix uh, <laughs> if we get Washington to understand this. That's not such an easy fix. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's a it's a bit like there are two issues, right? One is the subsidies economics. So you could actually, you say, well, I don't want to stop the subsidies. You could actually direct the subsidies to the consumers, get them to eat more healthy, right? So, uh, which is going to come back and reduce our healthcare costs. Right. right? So what, I, what we suggest, what I suggest in the book is a phenomenon, a, a, a economic tool called differential subsidization. Tax the bad stuff and use the tax to subsidize the good stuff. All right, so could this work? Well, it's already worked. In 1977, the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, huge alcohol problem, Hmm. because it was dark and dank and damp and there was no Netflix and people just (laughs) And it showed up on two sides of the ledger. It showed on the positive side of the ledger with decreased productivity, and it showed up on the negative side of the ledger with cirrhosis and car accidents, all right? So these three countries banded together and passed two pieces of legislation that were yoked together. All right, first, they nationalized all the liquor stores. So every liquor store sold the exact same thing at the exact same price. So you couldn't go somewhere else and buy it cheaper. Second thing they did was they taxed high alcohol spirits and they used the money from the tax to subsidize low alcohol beer. It provided the inducement, the carrot and the stick, the punishment. And they were yoked together. And what they were able to do over the course of 20 years was move people from hard spirits to low alcohol beer. And guess what? Productivity improved. Car accidents and cirrhosis of the liver went down, leveled out at a low level. Both those policies are still in place today because they work. Differential subsidization. So let me give you an example. Same problem here. Same problem here in food. So so let me give you an example. Why couldn't we tax soda and use the money from the tax to subsidize water? Could be done. So there are ways around this. There are ways to do it, right? But people have to want it, and you know the and politicians have to understand how imperative this is. Problem is, food industry's you know kicking and screaming because you know this is their juggernaut. So what we have to do is we have to bring them to the table. 
We have to basically show them how this is actually in their best interest. And it is. It actually is in their best interest. But in order to make it in their best interest so that it's in everyone's best interest, you have to change the rules of the current food business model. So that companies are rewarded for doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. That can be done, but politicians have to want it. And right now, you know, food industry is in charge. Yeah, I think, like you say, education is a big component of it. Yes. I want to quickly touch on, Rob, on the medical side of it. So, um, you know, we measure all these things. We measure LDL, HDL, uh, triglycerides, yeah. uric acid, fasting blood sugar, all sorts of things. And, and we have on the, on the medical side set of targets. And we say if it's above that, it's bad. If it's below that, it's okay. Garbage. And those targets keep moving. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the point. The targets keep moving. Why are the targets moving? The reason is because those targets are statistical anomalies. All right. Everyone's got fatty liver disease today. So, you know, the ALT, which is a measure of fatty liver, you know, the when I went to medical school 40 years ago, the upper limit was 25. Today it's 40. How come? Same assay. How come? The answer is because everyone's got fatty liver disease. <laughs> right? Same with uric acid. So, you know, ultimately, that's not the arbiter of whether you're healthy or not. Yeah. And so, so, so from your perspective, uh, I mean, you are sort of reducing the problem to more simpler heuristics, um, you know, uh, such as clean clean up the liver, that that is going to you know uh, get you better. Well, so you have, are there you have to know what the problem is. If you, you you can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. Yeah, but I'm wondering, uh, Rob, you know, from a practical perspective, would you suggest are there things that you would suggest today that you know, the medical profession does, you know, sort of a bit, so somewhat a simple set of heuristics uh, so, that you want to look at. So the medical profession knows nothing about nutrition. Zero. Only 28% of medical schools even have a nutrition curriculum. And the number of contact hours is median is 19.6. They spend 6,000 hours in medical training and the total of 19.6 hours are spent on nutrition. So how do you expect doctors to know anything when you don't teach them? Let's start with some you know, basic principles, okay? Prescription pads are not the cure, all right? That's what doctors are taught. And I know, because I went through medical school, okay? That's prevention is the cure. And, and you have to intervene early, right? Um, the, the, the further you wait, the, the more difficult Absolutely. It is. So so would you say then, Rob, in conclusion, um, education clearly, you say people are getting more aware of this problem uh, based on that, that survey that you said. Yes, slowly. Uh, which is a good sign. Yes. Um, you say medical schools haven't really gotten onto the nutrition issue. Yep. There's still sort of the, the legacy track. Um, then, and then policymakers have to understand this, right? These are three sort of a three-leg stool that we have. The consumer seems to understand it better. Uh, the provider haven't really gotten there, no, nor, the, nor the payer, I think. The payer 
payers I guess don't know anything. That's sort of confusing to me. Wouldn't the payers have a lot of incentive here to get the population healthy? Wouldn't you think so? <laughs> I agree with you. Um, you know, I've talked with a lot of payers and, you know, they, they want to get on board, but they're afraid to because they think they're going to end up spending on both ends. And they yeah. and for and for a couple of years, they might. And the, and the biggest pair uh, in the puzzle is the is the U.S. government with Medicare, CMS. They have done uh, that. Sixty-two percent of all medical costs are paid by the U.S. government, so it is in their best interest to solve this. But they don't see it. They don't see it. Yeah. So, so what are your plans, Rob? Now that uh, now that you have some time, what are you going to do about this? Oh, I don't have any time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy trying to fix the problem and I'm fixing it in many different ways. I'm fixing it with policy, I'm fixing it with co consultation, I'm fixing it with advocacy. I'm also fixing it with some technology. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a full life. Excellent, yeah, I really, uh, I, I couldn't read the whole book, but I, I love reading it. I have to say some of your uh, conclusions, I, I reached myself by experimenting on myself. <laughs> well, I, I had a physician who was sort of a partner for about 30 years. And so so my measurements uh, have stayed pretty much in that range for about 30 years without using a lot of pharmaceuticals. So I think there are physicians out there who, in coordination with their patients, um, could do things quite differently. I would hope so. Ultimately, I wrote the book for doctors. Uh, the publisher doesn't want me to say that. But, you know, doctors have to be re-educated. You know, doctors have to unlearn nutrition. And, you know, they need they need a textbook. Well, Metabolical is that textbook. Excellent. Thanks so much for spending time with me, Rob. Oh, thanks for having me, Gail. It's my, been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Are we there? Yeah, just... This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.